Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. A few weeks ago, I was uh, doing my thing, scrolling through Instagram, and I saw my buddy sent me um, this thing where someone was saying, what was the worst church service you've ever been to? So someone on Twitter uh, put out the question, and they said, what is the worst church service you've ever been to? And, you know, there were some crazy stories, you know, a lot of answers saying, oh, we did songs and there was a false ending and everyone clapped, but then they kept singing for some reason. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Uh, There were just crazy uh, stories, but there was one that took the cake. Um, It it kind of blew up. It kind of went viral. So if if you read this, just pretend you haven't. But there was one that just clearly heads above all the rest, just like, that is objectively the worst church service you could have been to. And this one guy, he responded uh, to the tweet. He said, well, uh, we were at a youth camp. Well, that's a good start. We were at a youth camp, and they announced to us that our youth pastor had died in a car wreck driving to the camp that evening. And then the kids are just, you know, in agony, you know, weeping, sobbing over their lost youth, youth pastor, and then they hear his voice from the rafters where he was hiding, and he starts preaching about destruction and hell, and you can imagine the emotional trauma those kids went through when they were just lied that their youth pastor died just so he could talk about hell. And I think he personally, legally, should be responsible for all of their counseling for the next 20, 30 years. Um, But uh, this guy, uh, kind of a doofus. He was a bit too creative uh, for his own good. And Paul today is going to say, hey, youth pastor Tommy, uh, you thought you were so smart and creative doing this. Um, Maybe you should have read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and start flipping to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, as we go through this passage, um, hopefully we can talk maybe some aspiring youth pastors from falling into this temptation. I've already taken notes. Um, We had that on the list for camp next year. I scratched it off. Um, It's not happening anymore. So uh, just so you guys know. But... um, some, some background before jumping into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, Paul is writing to this messed up church in Corinth. This messed up church is being influenced by Greek culture. And at this point, it's being influenced more by culture than by Jesus. And Paul is writing to say, hey, you should stop it. You got all these, these things going on. Stop it and turn back. And then... As we go into this uh, passage today, one thing to keep in mind is in this day, in, in Corinthian culture back then, they had a really high view of philosophy and rhetoric. 
and public speaking, persuasion, debate, right? We talked about it a little bit last time, but they had this really high view of philosophers and public speakers. And the closest thing I was thinking that we could compare it to today is celebrities, professional athletes, and movie stars. Like that's, that's how highly they looked up to these philosophers and public speakers is how we would look up to like Michael Jordan and movie star, I don't know, uh, Chuck Norris, right? Um, how we would look up to these people, they looked up to their philosophers and speakers. These uh, philosophers back then were like the basketball player who you would drive like three hours to see just so you could say that you saw them play once in your lifetime, right? Or the actress who is an everyday household name to people all over the world. And in Paul's day, the team to beat, the philosophers to beat, the, the, the 95 bulls back in the day were called the sophists, the sophists. And they were a school of philosophy that was just known for how great of public speakers they were. They were the, the best debaters of the age. They were the best at rhetoric. And they could captivate and they could persuade any crowd. And there were people, uh, people just followed after these guys like they followed after Michael Jordan, buying their jerseys, right? Getting front row tickets, taking selfies with them. And these guys were so good, it was almost more important that how they communicated something was more important than what they were communicating. So their style was almost more important than their substance. And I think we can relate to that today, right? We see all over social media, all over the news. Nothing's about substance anymore, but it's all about what can I say so that they could play a 10-minute sound clip and, or a 10-second sound clip, and I could, I could look really good. Context doesn't matter. What I'm saying doesn't matter. But 10 seconds of me looking good, that's all that matters for me to get views and get my message out there, right? So, so style above substance. I think we can relate to that a little bit today. I think it, it may be an epidemic in Christian churches today, people who want style over substance from their pastors, right? We're in uh, 2 Timothy. Uh, Pastor Dean's been going through 2 Timothy. Uh, I've been getting a lot of deja vu as we've been in 2 Timothy. And, and you know, we, in 2 Timothy 4, we got the itching ear syndrome. People who want to hear what they want to hear. Uh, people who want style over substance. Tell me what I want to hear. But it's not just those churches that you immediately think of, right? It's not just the churches that are buying the Houston Rockets stadiums and turning into a church, right? It's not just uh, living your best life now. It's not just those churches, but it's churches all over the spectrum who have a tendency, who have that temptation of having growing itching ear syndrome. You know, I, 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 just, I just want a good show. Entertain me with jokes. Be more creative. Uh, talk about those people, but don't you dare ask me to repent. Don't you dare ask me to kill my sin. Don't you dare ask me to change. And we see how they slowly drift into that temptation, right? Well, when Paul is coming to Corinth, he is emphasizing and prioritizing substance. You could see the church in Corinth was probably expecting Paul to be like these sophists. 
They were probably expecting Paul to be like this, this great philosopher who's coming to town and he's going to impress everyone so that he can get a crowd to himself because that's what philosophers would do. That's how they would make a living, by impressing people and then getting people to say, hey, I want to follow you. Here's my money. And that's what the church in Corinth would have expected Paul to do. But Paul wasn't concerned with winning the Corinthians with style. He was concerned about substance. He was concerned about being faithful to his message. So instead of following culture, instead of relying on result-driven, manipulative speeches, Paul focused on conveying the message faithfully while relying on the Spirit's power to persuade and transform people. So, in this passage, these short five verses that we're going to read today, and we're going to be out in an amazing time. You're going to be so, so happy with me. You're going to want to give me a raise. Uh, But Paul, in this passage, he wants to emphasize that it's substance, not style, that matters. Paul is encouraging us today, you and me, to keep the main thing the main thing. He's encouraging us to keep the main thing the main thing as we live out and we share the gospel. So, with all that in mind, I hope you have 1 Corinthians chapter 2 opened in your Bible. If you want and you're able, let's go ahead and stand as we honor God's word. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray, and we'll dive into it. God, you are so good. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your powerful message that is able to give life, transform lives, and give true satisfaction and joy. So God, I pray we will be just in awe of you, be overwhelmed by your truth, and that we will just devote our lives to you. Speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So the main point today, if you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, the main point today is Paul is encouraging us to keep the main thing, the main thing, by being determined to live for the gospel, by realizing our weakness, and by relying on God's power. So first, we must be determined to live for the gospel. Everyone, put your finger in the air, wave it like you just don't care, and put it on verse 1 right here. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined, I resolved not to know anything among you save Jesus and him crucified. Paul was 
determined. His goal, his ambition was to know nothing but this message. His ambition was not to come and impress anyone, but it was to make Jesus Christ known. And we must be determined to live for the gospel. That is why we have breath in our lungs today. Paul in Philippians chapter one, he said, I long, I ache for the day when I can leave this body. I want that day where I can leave this world and I'll be with Christ. I just want that so bad, but Christ has me here for a reason. He has Paul here for the sake of others so that he can live out the gospel, so that he can share the gospel, and so that he can build up the church in the gospel. And you and I are here. You and I have breath in our lungs. You and I are walking this earth for the exact same reason, to live out the gospel, to share the gospel, and to build up the church in the gospel. That's, the, that's why the, God didn't just call you up as soon as you were saved. That's why you were walking this planet. Jesus gave us a mission in Matthew 28. He said, we are to go and make disciples. We are to go and make Christians. We are to multiply. We have a job, a mission to do. And Paul here is saying, keep that mission the main thing. Keep that in mind. Don't get bogged down by side issues. Don't get distracted by culture. Don't get intimidated by people. Don't let trends get in your way, but share the gospel with your words and with your deeds. And Paul said he didn't come with worldly speech or wisdom, but he resolved to preach nothing but Christ crucified. So I want to look at these two verses really quick and see what Paul isn't saying here. Uh, Paul is not saying that good presentations, that good speeches, that good sermons are bad. So Next time you call a pastor, when Pastor Dean retires in 40 to 50 years, um, next time you call a pastor, the qualification is not, okay, we need a bad public speaker because I read 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and Paul says, I'm a bad speaker, so you, you want to be like me. Like, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, Paul's not condemning good sermons here. He's not saying that uh, you can't have a convincing argument for what you believe and why you believe it. There is good persuasion. There is good reasons. There are good presentations of the gospel, and we should be giving those good persuasive presentations. Sharing with someone the goodness and the trueness of our loving God should be done graciously and persuasively, both in our words and in our actions. So we should be persuasive. Paul isn't saying don't be that. If our actions aren't persuasive, if you're out in the world living like the devil six days a week, or you're the meanest person people can be around, if, you've, if you can't remember the last time you ever apologized to your spouse, your actions, your lifestyle, probably not very persuasive for the sake of the gospel. Some people have the meanest face, and they're like, you know what? Follow Jesus, and you can be happy like me. It's like... <laughs> Bro, you haven't smiled since 2003. Why would I want to follow Jesus? Why would I want to be like you? We should be persuasive in our lives. Our lives should be seasoned with salt, right? And with our words. 
So we don't, but what Paul is emphasizing here, so he's not saying we can't be persuasive, but what he's emphasizing is we don't rely on our persuasion. We don't rely on methods. We don't rely on uh, our strengths or our personalities or creativity to win people. A church can't entertain people to Jesus. And even worse, we can't manipulate people into making a decision. In uh, reading up on this passage, I was reading uh, one pastor uh, whom I love, and he was talking about this popular evangelism book from, I think, the 50s. In this evangelism book, uh, the author was basically saying, well, he, he was giving the gospel like someone would give a used car's sales pitch, right? It's just a big sales pitch. And uh, the, the author of this book, uh, you know, used all the updated, all the state-of-the-art sales techniques from the 50s and the 60s, and uh, he knows how to close the deal. And he goes on uh, into the technique. He, he shares his talking points, and then he said, uh, then you want to make the person say the sinner's prayer. And he said, and listen to this. He said, it doesn't matter what they're thinking at this point. It matters what they do. And all they have to do is say this prayer. So in order for you to get this result, you want to put your hand on the person's shoulder and you want to say in a semi-commanding voice, pray with me. And then as you pray at the right time, you want to put a little more weight on his shoulder and he said, the psychological pressure of seeing you begin to pray, he's going to buckle and he will say that prayer. And boom, you close the deal. And the pastor who's talking about that book from the 50s, the pastor who's talking about that, goes on to highlight his word, how this book is garbage. How this man-centered technique is garbage. We need to realize that the power of evangelism and having conversions is in the Holy Spirit of God alone not a technique or even a program. Just like Elijah on Mount Horeb, God's power, God was not in the wind, he was not in the earthquake, he was not in the fire, he's not in the man's centered technique. And that's what Paul is saying here. I didn't come with this man-centered technique to manipulate you into heaven. I came sharing Christ on a cross. And he also says, I didn't come with wisdom. Now, Paul's not saying that wisdom is bad. Paul is not condemning wisdom. As if Christianity is this, like, this blind leap of faith, this existential religion, where if you use a little bit of logic, you're doing it wrong. That's not what Paul's saying. Some critics outside of Christianity will say, yeah, that's what Christians are. They're just blind faith, people who, who don't think, and, and you know, it's a, a crutch for, for weaker-minded people. But that's not what Paul says he's doing. He's not throwing wisdom out of the window. He's throwing man-centered, godless wisdom out the window. The Bible is very concerned about wisdom. There's a whole genre of biblical literature, biblical books called wisdom literature, right? The key to wisdom. The Bible says wisdom all starts where? With the fear of the Lord, right? Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom starts with God. The all-knowing God created order. 
The all-knowing God created logic. The all-knowing God created students. You listening? Algebra and geometry. The all-knowing God who is all-wise created this world in a logical and a reasonable way, rationally, in his wisdom. And we only understand it when we start with the fear of the Lord, when we start with him. He's the one who, who, who allows us to have and to come to any ounce of wisdom. The ones who attack Christianity, they're saying it's not reasonable, it's not intellectual. Are, they're, they're standing on Christian shoulders. They're using Christian reason to attack Christians. They're stealing from our worldview to attack it. Uh, science, as we know it today, is built by men who had very Christian frameworks of mind. Uh, Francis Bacon, who did not invent the BLT. Uh, Francis Bacon, uh, Galileo, Louis Pasteur. These men uh, had at least a Christian worldview, a Christian frame of mind when they made their contributions to science. Also, everyone who, who just thinks in the West, the uh, Western culture is Europe and its descendants, Europe and the Americas, right? Everyone who thinks in the West is standing on the shoulders of St. Augustine from 1,600 years ago. You think the way you do because St. Augustine thought and wrote 1,600 years ago. And he was a Christian who was very rooted on Paul's shoulders, who was rooted in Scripture, who is giving us the wisdom of God in the Word of God. So those who attack Christianity are sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. And that's how you have um, irrational philosophies. That's how you have contradictory philosophies. But at this point, people aren't caring that they're contradictory. But they have no logical or moral foothold without stealing from the Christian worldview. But Paul, who is about to commend true wisdom in the next section of this chapter, is not condemning knowledge and wisdom itself. He's condemning man-centered, godless wisdom that doesn't start with the fear of the Lord. And third, the third thing Paul isn't saying is he's not saying that the only thing he ever talked about was Christ crucified. Yes, he, 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 uh, that's his, his main focus in this part of his letter. But even in this letter, he talks a little bit more about a little bit more than the crucifixion, right? Something else that's very important is the resurrection. So he talks about that as well. Um, He's not saying that when he was in Corinth, he didn't talk about life. He didn't talk about marriage. He didn't talk about ethics. He didn't talk about politics or how to act at work, how to respect authority. He does touch on all these types of things that are beyond Christ crucified. But what he is saying here is Christ crucified is the main thing. That's the gospel, Christ's life, death, and resurrection to redeem people to God. This is top priority. That's what Paul is saying here. This is the lens through which we see everything else. The gospel alone is the main thing. And once we take our eye off the main thing, we lose our way as a church. We become self-focused and we fight and we bicker because 
we took our eyes off the selfless Savior. We become social clubs that just hang out and, and talk about everything else and how bad the world is and how bad everyone else is besides us. And we just talk about our shared opinions because we've taken our eyes off the mission. We become empty concert halls because we take our eyes off the one who is worthy of all praise. And when the church loses focus on the main thing, the church becomes worthless and useless. And Jesus said in Revelation 2 that I will take my lampstand from you. I will take the light from you. I will take the life, my presence from you. But Paul says, keep the main thing, the main thing. Don't get distracted, but be determined to live for the gospel. Be resolved to make this and this alone the center, the focus of your life. Not a successful career, not a perfect family, not popularity, relationships, sports, a political platform, but Christ's gospel is your life if you're a Christian. If you asked a close friend who knows you well, what do you think the main purpose of my life is? What would they say? Would they say, the main purpose of your life is clearly Christ. The main purpose of your life, what I see you living for every day is the gospel, or would they say something else? Paul was determined to make sure that no one would be confused about what his main purpose was. Second, we keep the main thing the main thing by realizing our weakness Put your finger in verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. People can kind of interpret this verse three ways, really. Either Paul was uh, talking about the weakness of the crucifixion of Christ. He came in the, the, uh, sharing the message of the countercultural upside down scandal of the cross. The long awaited king came to die. That is weak in the world's eyes. So he could be talking about that weakness, um, or Paul was maybe talking about his physical condition. We see in 2 Corinthians that uh, maybe he had a physical ailment or a sickness. Maybe it was a, a, a disease of the eyes. We don't really know, but whatever it was, uh, maybe Paul was physically sick while he was preaching Christ in Corinth. Or the third option, uh, the option I'm kind of landing on right now is that Paul was actually, actually scared. Paul actually had some fear. Spoiler alert, the great apostle Paul was human. He had human thoughts. He felt human emotions and pain. And I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure it hurts just a little bit to have a bunch of giant rocks thrown at you. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it feels pretty bad when you're mocked and rejected over and over and over and over again. Paul could have been scared, actually scared to share the gospel in Corinth. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 18. Um, Acts 18 is when Paul first comes to Corinth. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10, the Lord comes to Paul in a dream in a vision. And the Lord says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So he says, do not be afraid, go on speaking, 
for I am with you, and, he says, no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city who are mine. So maybe the Lord in Acts chapter 18, maybe the Lord, when Acts was in the city of Corinth sharing the gospel, maybe the Lord had to tell him, don't be afraid, people won't attack you because Paul was afraid that people would attack him. So maybe the Lord had to reassure him for, uh, of that. And I think all of us in this room can relate to that, right? You and I are human just like Paul. And we don't want to be uncomfortable and we don't want to be rejected. The number one reason why we don't share the gospel is we are afraid of how people are going to respond. From uh, maybe we give excuses like, I, I don't want to make the conversation awkward. I don't want to look weird. What if they get mad at me? What if I don't have the right words to say? And we can easily let fear stop us from sharing the gospel or living boldly for the gospel. But as the great theologian John Wayne once said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Paul could have been scared to death, but he preached the gospel anyway. You and I may be scared, but share the gospel anyway. Talk about Jesus with that person that you know needs him. Share what you're learning in your quiet time at the lunch table at schools. Start those gospel conversations and know that the Lord is the one who does the work. Our strength, our creativity, our manipulation cannot add to the power of this message. Realize that we are weak, but thank God he is strong. And third, Live for the gospel by relying on God's power. Verse 4 and 5 says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Paul was able to preach without relying on man's wisdom, without excellency of speech, through his weaknesses, because he knew that God is the one who changes hearts and gives lives, gives life. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God is the one who does the work. Paul can be faithful to the gospel because God is powerful to do the work. He doesn't have to entertain. He doesn't have to water down. He doesn't have to manipulate because it's all on God. One of my favorite verses from the past few years is actually in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I can quote it now because uh, hopefully you'll forget that I quoted it by the time I get to preach it. But 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. The scripture is full of farming analogies for good reason. Farmers know that they can only do so much. Farmers can only be faithful. They can work hard. They can till the soil. They can pull weeds. They can remove rocks, plant and water seeds. But the growth is out of their hands. And we are called to be faithful farmers and plant the seeds of the gospel. Water it with our lifestyle of godliness. Living for the Lord. And we let the Lord do the work. And we don't know where we are in someone's story. We might be planters. We might be waterers. We might be both. 
We may see growth and fruit. We may not. But we know that it is the Lord who is good and powerful, and he's the one who brings growth. So rest in that power. Yes, you may be weak, but saddle up anyway because the God of the universe is strong and he is on your side. So share the gospel. Live for Christ at school and work. Kill sin in your life. Read your Bible. Pray. Be faithful in these things and they will add up and the Lord will use them and make an eternal impact through your life. And some may be here today who don't have a faith based on the power of God that verse 5 talks about. To those who might be in here who haven't given their lives to Christ, maybe they're here because family uh, brings them here. Uh, Maybe you're here because your friends are here. Uh, But whatever it is, whatever your reason is, God has you here for his reason. And that is to hear this. It is to hear that you are born a sinner. You are born an enemy of God. You are born without hope, just like every single person in this room. And because of your sin, we are separated from God. But God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die on the cross as a substitute for his enemies, taking the punishment they deserve, and then raising again, defeating sin and death, and he'll one day return again. So that whoever gives their lives to him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Receive this true and everlasting life. Don't build your wisdom. Don't build your hope. Don't build your faith on anything of men. But build it on the power of God. Give your life to him tonight. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are and what you've done in Christ. And God, I pray that you will empower us. You will empower us. You will convict us. I pray that we will see where we fall short and that, God, you will bring healing to that area of our life. You will bring strength so that we can repent, we can give that over to you, and that we can live faithfully for you. Lord, I pray that we, as Central Baptist Church, will continue to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's your message and your gospel. Grow us, convict us, draw us closer to you. May we be used for mighty things in your kingdom, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.